All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are as you've revealed yourself in Scripture to us. Uh, your attributes are not only perfect, but they're unchanging, uh, eternal, and infinite in all of your attributes, Lord. And, and uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done in redemptive history, uh, not only making yourself known through your word, but then coming in the person of Christ Jesus, the word made life, saving us from our sins and reconciling us to yourself, making us a people for your own possession. Uh, we thank you for this gift of grace, Lord. We, we've done nothing to earn it or merit it. So we just want to praise you and acknowledge that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we want to follow you, Lord. We want to follow you well. We want to obey you and honor you in all that we do because of how you've loved us. So help us now to learn from your word, to, to grow, to be convicted, uh, to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we really are going to focus on Malachi chapter 4, 1 to 6, but we're going to pick up in a, a passage that we've already covered, and, and hopefully you'll see why. If not, I'll, I'll explain it. But So Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, and then we're going to read through all the way to the end of the book, which is really only about 10 verses. So Malachi 3, 13, you have your Bible, you can read there. If not, you can follow on the screen. I'll give you a couple minutes. All right, let's, let's read together. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And I, I wanted to reread part of chapter 3, because as we look at this passage, it's not a separate dispute. Now, that's the structure of the book of Malachi. It's broken up into these dispute. Uh, but this, in chapter 4, it really is just a continuation of the dispute that starts in 3.13. So we're not going to recover everything that we looked at a couple weeks ago. 
But I do think it's just helpful to locate the passage in its proper context. And so this promise and the prophecy of judgment is in the context of the Israelites complaining and grumbling against God, saying things like in 3.13, it's vain to serve God. What was the purpose of our obedience? No, we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers prosper. However, against the backdrop of their, their scorning and complaining, we see that there is a faithful remnant in 3.16. Those who feared the Lord and they came together and spoke with one another. And the Lord assures them that contrary to their assumptions and even accusations, that the Lord does pay attention. That the Lord is, there's a book of remembrance uh, and that the day is going to come where he will make distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God, even if they don't see that in the moment. And then as chapter 4.1 highlights, he is going to judge the wicked. And you see all the, the connections all the way back into chapter 3. So their original accusation in this dispute, which I think is 3.13 or 14, we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. And then in chapter 4.1, just to showing you that this is all connected, it's all the same dispute, God says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Uh, and then there's a promise of blessing. And who's that promise of blessing for it in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4? It is for those who... Fear his name, which harkens back to 3.16. So, those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. So, there's judgment for the arrogant and the evildoers mentioned in chapter 3. And there's blessing promised for those who fear the Lord. And as a sidebar, I just want to highlight this. That sometimes, I don't know if you can actually read this, but divisions and uh, headings and chapter divisions sometimes are not helpful in your Bibles. They're, they're not inspired. Uh, the chapter divisions are not inspired. The subheadings are not inspired. Uh, they're from translators. So I, I think it's pretty clear that this dispute goes from chapter or verse 13 of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4. But instead, you have this portion with the prior dispute and then you have a, a subheading and a subheading and a chapter division. And it just intuitively, visually, it makes it look like, oh, these are all separate things. But really, this all goes together. Uh, and it's very clear from those, those things I just highlighted that arrogant evildoers, uh, and then it comes up again, the arrogant and the evildoers. So this all is together. So just to say that sometimes you have to be a little bit more discerning and you can't always trust uh, that chapter divisions and subheadings are going to put you on the right track in terms of how you're thinking about the structure of the passage. But that's just a sidebar. But anyways, I think this just helps us get situated in, in the text to, to remind us what the context of chapter 4 is and the, the judgment that is uh, prophesied and the, the blessing that is promised. Uh, and I would just break our passage up. Th these six verses into four, even four points here. Uh, there's the, the judgment of the wicked, the blessing of the righteous. So verse one is the judgment of the wicked, the blessing of the righteous, verse two and three. Then we have an exhortation in verse four. 
So, the exhortation in verse 4, and then there's a promise in verse 5. Uh, and so, if you would like the main idea of what, what I think this whole dispute is about, and, and especially in our text, these six verses this morning, it is simply that God always, always, always will vindicate His righteousness. doesn't matter what you see with your eyes in the moment. It doesn't matter what people say, what people are thinking. doesn't matter what, how it doesn't make sense to you. You can rest assured that when all is said and done, there will be no legitimate questions as to whether or not God has acted justly. God will vindicate His righteousness and His justice, and there will be no legitimate questions. Now, people still, I think it's reasonable that there's going to be people in hell, they're still going to be raising their fist at God, angry, that they're not made new, they're not regenerate, that they might still be angry and mad, but there will be no legitimate questions concerning the righteousness of God when all is said and done. So, now with that in mind, you know, we've got judgment, blessing, exhortation, and promise in these this small six verses. Now let's just, let's just plot through the text. So coming back to now Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, this is really where we are picking up from two weeks ago. Does someone want to just read verse 1 for us, nice and loud? For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Yeah, and we've already highlighted the connections to chapter 3, the evildoers and the, the arrogant. So, as we read, behold, the day is coming. Well, I think it's a a natural question to ask, okay, well, what day? Uh, What day is God referring to when he says the day is coming? Uh, Because typically, actually in the Old Testament, when judgment is being pronounced by the prophets, it's not usually talking immediately about the last day. It's not talking about the, the final eschatological judgment. Typically, when you hear judgment being pronounced, it's historically situated. So the the simplest way to break it down is that if it's in the northern kingdom, right? because after after David, you you have Solomon, after Solomon, you have uh, Rehoboam, and the the kingdom splits under Rehoboam, and that's around like 950-ish. So you have uh, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Now you have two kingdoms, northern Israel and southern Judah. So if if it's prior to 722 and it's talking about the northern kingdom, the, the judgment that's being pronounced is typically going to be the Assyrian captivity. That Assyria is going to come, they're going to wipe out the northern kingdom, they're going to take them away into captivity. If it's after 722, well now you only have the southern kingdom, uh, and oftentimes what's being pronounced is a judgment of the Babylonian empire. They're going to come, they're going to wipe out Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, They're going to take them away. That's Daniel, Jeremiah too. They're going to be taken away into captivity in Babylon. And most often, it's it's one of those. But then sometimes it it is clear that you're reading in the Old Testament and the judgment that's being pronounced is so apocalyptic, so eschatological, that you're like, well, this has to be referring to a final 
eschatological kind of judgment uh, because the language is just so hyperbolic. So when we consider Malachi, we need to remember, okay, is this before or after 722? After. Is it before or after the Babylonian captivity? After. Okay, so both of those are kind of off the table. And then if you know Israel's history, the the next big kind of judgment that is brought upon them uh, in terms of their national history doesn't happen until 70 AD with Rome. And and that's, I I don't think there's really any passages in the Old Testament, maybe maybe except for Daniel, that that would be looking already to the the Roman Empire and and instruction at that point. Uh, So that alone would lead me to think that this is talking about a, a final judgment. And if it is a final judgment, that also reveal, uh, resolves the tension concerning the blessing of the arrogant. Uh, because if this merely has in view that, you know, someday future generations of ungodly people are going to be judged for their sin, uh, it doesn't totally resolve the tension that, that the Isra- these Jewish people have, that today, right now, these, the wicked and the evildoers and the arrogant, they're being blessed how is that tension resolved? Well, it's resolved by God saying, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter when you live, it doesn't matter what your historical context is, the day is coming when the evildoers will be judged and the arrogant will be judged. And, and so that uh, also just seems to fit best the whole, the whole passage into uh, that day, he is in fact talking about uh, the last judgment, the, the final judgment that God brings the whole world subject to. Yeah, so never that, that would be my reading of the text. Nevertheless, there's some really good guys, like Calvin, for example, thinks that this is speaking about a more spiritual judgment that befell the unbelieving Jews who rejected Christ. So, so he's looking, because of other contextual reasons, that he's thinking it refers to the, the first coming of Christ. But even Calvin, who didn't think that this was talking about a final judgment, says this, and I think it's, it's really helpful. So I'm just going to read this to you. Calvin says, It is indeed true that these and similar expressions, uh, expressions like, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant evildoers will be stubble. Uh, expressions of judgment. When these and similar expressions, which everywhere occur in Scripture, have not their full accomplishment in this world, but God so suspends His judgments as yet never to withhold from giving evidences of them, that the godly may have some props to their faith. For if God gave no specimen or proof of his providence, it would immediately occur to our minds that there is to be no judgment. For he sets before us some examples that we may learn that he will, that there will sometime be judgment of the world. So as we approach prophecies of judgments, Calvin says, even when the, the prophecies are earthly and temporal, even if it's clear that it's talking about Babylon or Assyria, language like this doesn't have its full accomplishment, its final fulfillment in this world. So even when we see these things in Scripture, we should recognize that even those historically situated judgments are but types and shadows of the final judgment. So it should cause us to lift our eyes when we see the Babylonian captivity, when we read the book of Lamentations, to 
lift our eyes and say, this is but a shadow of a greater judgment that is coming to all those who reject God and his gospel. Uh, But Calvin also says that God does not forever withhold temporary judgments so that the godly may have some props to their faith. Uh, And in this sense, even terrible judgments are are a mercy of God in some way. Uh, The judgment of God is intended to awaken us out of our unbelieving stupor, even for uh, those who, whether you're a a Christian, and you need to be reminded that there is a judgment, and God is going to act. He is going to intervene in a very powerful and concrete way, even if you don't see it today. And for unbelievers, that this world is condemned. There is a judgment that is coming. And so... I would say when we look around and we see wildfires fires and tsunamis and plagues and famine and all these sorts of things, we should be reminded that this world is under judgment. Paul says in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, now, I don't think it's wise to say, oh, that person is ungodly as a particular individual. That's why they're suffering X, Y, and Z. We know that's not a wise biblical train of thought. But I do feel comfortable with the language that this world at large is, in, is under judgment. The whole point of Romans 1 is to show that the general posture of the world towards God is rebellion, and therefore it's under judgment. There has been a universal coup d'etat against God's sovereign reign in the jurisdiction of earth. And we are in rebellion against God's co- cosmic kingdom as a, as a whole, humanity, and therefore we're under judgment. And of course, there's a faithful remnant, but we are exiles. We're, we're aliens who don't really belong in this world and in this world system. Uh, all that to say, when we see God's judgment in Scripture, like you know, reading the book of Lamentations, or when we look around and we see present judgments, when we see sin and when we see suffering and death, we're reminded, we should be reminded, that the wages of sin is death. The only reason that this happens is because the world that we live in is in rebellion against its Creator. And that should cause us both to fear God, with an appropriate fear, and to cling to his mercy at the same time. There's a lot more that could be said in caveats, but I don't want to get too sidetracked here. Uh, But just highlighting that, just helpful of when we're thinking about historical judgments, that even historical judgments in the Old Testament should cause us to be reminded of of God's future judgment that is coming. Uh, But the point here in Malachi 4.1 says that, you know, whether in this life, or the next life, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Uh, And of course, when you see oven, don't think of our modern ovens made to cook something nicely at 350 degrees so that it's just perfect and warm and tasty. Uh, No, the NSB translates it, it's coming like a furnace. And I think that's more helpful to our minds, uh, big open flames consuming whatever you put in it. 
We don't want ovens to burn things, but the whole point of this is that it's going to burn it. It's going to be consumed completely. We live in the land of wildfires. So think about the landscape, you know, before the car fire. Uh, one day you have these beautiful landscapes, trees and mountains and beautiful homes and properties. And then the next day, virtually overnight, you have utter destruction. Uh, that is the kind of destruction that should come to our mind. Uh, then in, in verses 2 and 3, so, so that was the, the judgment that is going to befall the, the arrogant and the evildoers. In verse 2 and 3, we see the blessing of the righteous. It says, But for you who fear my name, uh, again, hearkening back to 316, uh, what is their lot, the, the ones who fear their name? Well, there's, there's three different components that are highlight, illustrations that are given in verses 2 and 3. And we'll look at those. But before, I just want to ask a question, because this has come up. Those who fear my name, that's the, the primary attribute that's given to the, the faithful. Uh, so when we hear that expression, what do we think of? What does it mean to fear the Lord, to, to fear his name? If you have a father and you fear that you you don't want to do wrong mm-hmm. because you want to, you don't want to disappoint uh, disappoint mm-hmm. a loving father mm-hmm. that kind of fear. Mm-hmm. This might be apocryphal, but I, I've heard that in, in certain medieval courts, when you came into the presence of the Lord of the land, you had to you had to come in wearing the origin of the necktie. You had to come in wearing a noose around your neck so that you understood the gravity of the person who you were, you know, so it's like, yeah, I mean, you fear, mm-hmm. like, this is this is the sovereign Lord, creator of all things, and has an absolute sovereign right to do whatever he wants with what belongs to him, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, yeah, it's a fear. Yeah. Uh, anybody else want to add to that, or? It's like, like an absolute, absolute certainty that he will do what he says he will do. So you, you're trusting his promises and, and his truth and the fact that he will judge mm-hmm. like he said he will. And there's an awe there mm-hmm. because you know he's who he says he is. Yeah. Uh, this is a discussion. It's something that I've thought a lot about uh, in, over the course of my Christian life. And I don't know that, that I have you know, the exact description and I can just articulate it so perfectly and clearly or that I have the, the, the balance correctly as we think about the fear of God. Uh, I would say my impression is that people tend to overly temper and overly qualify the statement of fearing the Lord such that it no longer even resembles anything that we would think of as fear, <laughs> uh, that it becomes something altogether other than actual fear. You know, but when God descended on Mount Sinai, uh, they didn't just have a like a cool, tempered respect for God's presence. Like they were terrified is, is the kind of language that God, the presence of God was so overwhelming to them. Uh, they, they couldn't, Moses, you go, <laughs> anything, but we don't want to, we cannot stand in the presence of God because they were terrified. I, I think of other passages in the scripture where people actually come into the contact with the living God. You know, Isaiah 8, which provides a context for Isaiah chapter 9 of uh, the Son, the 
who is given to us and Emmanuel, God with us, right before that in chapter 8, uh, it says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. You know, we have a scripture calling us to let God be our dread. Other people are afraid of death and disease and invading armies and famine and death of all kinds. Isaiah says, don't fear things like the world fears them. Let God be your fear. Let him be your dread. Or you could scroll a couple chapters back in Isaiah when he has the vision of really Christ. We learn as Christ from John 10, uh, seated upon the throne. And, you know, Isaiah was not, just, again, a cool, tempered, you know, I, I honor you. But <laughs> he was utterly undone in the presence of the Lord. And I'm not saying that this is the only thing that governs our relationship and our disposition towards God, but I do think we do ourselves a disservice when we overly qualify and we over we just step it down so much that we no longer have anything that might ever resemble. I, this is a, a being who could be terrifying to me, who, whose presence would be overwhelming. So on the flip side... I just to, I am going to qualify this. Scripture does say, you know, we have boldness and confidence through our faith in Christ because what he has done, because Christ is our high priest and he has made a perfect atonement forever. And uh, John says, perfect love casts out fear. So we don't live each day on eggshells as believers in Christ, wondering, oh, I hope God doesn't smite me today if I make a misstep. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that and we operate out of that. Yet, I think, so we hold that in mind of what we have in Christ and how we can approach God in Christ as our high priest. Yet, I do think there should be an awareness in the back of our minds that even as you go to God the Father in confidence and faith in Christ, that there is an awareness that outside of Christ, there would be nothing to mediate God's burning wrath against me, that I would be utterly consumed like the evildoers if it were not for the blood of Christ. How I should cling to Christ, how I should be sure to keep my faith in the perfect finished work of Christ, lest I should step out of that and seek to come to God outside of Christ, outside of His righteousness, how terrifying that would be to be in the presence of God, not being covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I think that should be there always so that we, we appreciate the, the holiness of God and who He is in His righteousness and holiness and, and what that means for sinners like me. What it means for a sinner to approach a holy God. Uh, And as we appreciate that, the more we will appreciate the wonder of our mediator who has completely satisfied the wrath of God against my sin, who has completely and utterly discharged my debt once and for all, and who has brought me into the family of God as a son and as daughters and were reconciled with a perfect atonement. And and we don't appreciate the, the weight and the depth of that if we just if we always temper and qualify 
you know, whether it's the wrath of God, the holiness of God, what it means to fear the Lord because of who he is. So I just want to highlight that. So now, what are the blessings that, that come to the righteous, uh, those who fear God? Well, what do you guys see in verses 2 and 3? Well, first of all, you got the Son of Righteousness still uh, bring healing in its wings. And it's significant it says Son because it is the light of the world. Mm-hmm. And the healing is more than physical healing. It's the healing of our souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It's a interesting expression to me. Uh, one time I made the mistake of thinking that I was going to save time and avoid traffic by driving all throughout the night, just like 11 or 12 hours straight through the night with no sleep, and that that was just going to be fine. And at like four in the morning, I was struggling so much. I mean, I was, I don't know why I didn't pull over and just take a nap, but I was just, I mean, I was in death, dark shadow trying to get to Philadelphia where we were going. And, oh, it was terrible. And then at about 5.30, the, the sun began to peak over the horizon and I was amazed. I was not expecting this at all. I was like, I can't believe I have five more hours of this. Like, we're going to die. And the sun rose, and it brought healing in its wings. I was rejuvenated. I was felt reinvigorated. I felt like I had new life just because the sun had risen. And I know it's just a personal kind of subjective thing, but it was this verse was just so apparent. I was like, oh man, the sun is wonderful. I had a new appreciation for the sun that I'd never had before. Or uh, I'm sure if any of you guys have been camping on a cold night, like we're so insulated from the weather in our homes and central heating. But uh, if you've ever been camping on a really cold night where like, you can't even sleep because it's so cold, and then the sun comes up, and you're just waiting and waiting for the sun to rise. And it's the most wonderful thing for the sun to rise with, Healing and it's it just ministers life to you, warmth and light. It's great, and like Beverly highlighted, the the promise of for the faithful is that the the sun will rise on you, and it's not just about warmth and light, but it's the sun of righteousness uh, who's going to bring life, spiritual life to you in your darkness. the The gloom and darkness of your sin. The, the sun of righteousness will rise upon you, bringing healing in its wings. And again, we, we can't help but think of Christ. Not only as Jeremy has been working through the book of John, I'm the light of the world. How many times? Several times Jesus highlights this. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And especially again, during the, the Christmas season, these are things that we think about often. Now, ultimately, these verses find their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. I, I think of when, when Jesus asked Peter, I would just, just highlight this, it's a bit of a sidebar, but when Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And 
It is the same for you today. If you have a true apprehension of who Christ is this morning, then flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. But God, who is in heaven, and whatever afflictions that you have this morning, whatever comforts you are lacking this morning, know that you are blessed. Why? Because the Son of Righteousness has risen upon you individually. The rays of His justifying righteousness has shone upon the darkness of your sin. The rays of true knowledge and wisdom has dispelled the fog of your ignorance and darkness. And that light has only begun to dawn at this point. We have everything to look forward to. As Christians, the light is just beginning to dawn. Uh, We have so much in Christ. And it doesn't matter whatever else is going on in your life. The Son of Righteousness has risen upon you. Just take a moment to appreciate that and thank God for His grace towards you because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come to it by your own wits and your own smarts, but God in heaven has made this known to you. Uh, And we should praise God for that. The chapter goes on uh, with two more illustrations uh, of the blessing of the the faithful. Uh, What's the second one? Leaping like calves. Yeah, yeah. You should go out leaping like calves from the stall. Anybody have any thoughts on on how they, what what that is intended to communicate? Joy, freedom. Hey, these are, I think, the two things that I highlighted. That's good. Yeah, I Google and YouTube the, uh, there's videos on YouTube. You <laughs> see when calves have been released after being puked up for a while and they let them out. It's just like, it's one of the most joyful things you'll ever see. It's yeah. Like, so stoked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I was like, I'm not a farmer, so I might miss this. But uh, just intuitively, I, I didn't have... I had a hard time trying to articulate what exactly these are, but I understood both the sun is going to rise with healing and swings. Like, well, I know what that feels like tangibly to have to be ministered by the light of the sun and the warmth of the sun. And, and I just intuitively, yeah, I have an image in my head and there is a kind of joy. There is a kind of freedom. There is a kind of unencumberedness of a calf going out from the stall. Like that calf is not worried about tomorrow. It's not anxious about its bills. Uh, it's not worried about foreign armies or the, the Persians subjugating them. Uh, that calf has nothing in the world that they're concerned about. Uh, they're just free. There's freedom. There's joy. There's liberty. Uh, there's a carefreeness. Of, of just, you, you see it. Uh, and it reminds me similarly, whether it's a calf or, or a young child, just young children playing. There's an unencumberedness. They're, they're free from inhibitions. They're not worrying. and There's just something beautiful about it. Uh, and, and I think all that is kind of the, the image we're, we're supposed to have in our minds. And uh, that would be good news to Israelites who are subjugated. Uh, they're, they're feeling they're poor. They're oppressed. And they're, they're struggling. And the Lord's saying, that, you know, the day is coming. Hold fast to my promises. Wait. The day is coming when you're, gonna, you're not going to feel all these things. You're, you're going to go out leaping like calves. And finally, he says in the, the last, in verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet 
on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And I, I don't know that, that we should take this hyper literally. I don't know that, uh, you know, to think that we're all, the day is going to come when, when we're all going to trod over our enemies in armed combat. But I would say, number one, we should appreciate the, the, the language and the categories that Malachi, or well, really the Lord is using in the context of these Israelites to the original audience. In the Old Testament, they had an earthly kingdom. They had a physical army. They had real military opponents who tried to kill them. And so the idea of conquering their enemies makes perfect sense in that context. Uh, the promise is that even if the righteous are trampled upon today, the day is coming when they will be vindicated over their enemies uh, and they will rise victorious over those who hate them and persecute them and oppress them. And I would say that we should re- also remember that this is quite literally what does happen at the second coming. Uh, so Revelation 19, New Testament, speaking of this John, seeing that the last, uh, the second coming, the last day, seeing Christ, that's who he's speaking of. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name, the name by which he is called, is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I know for, for some of us, uh, I know for much of the evangelical world, like if that image of Jesus making war isn't jarring enough, then you can look back to Isaiah 63 to see the passage that John is, is quoting, and while well, he's echoing, uh, referencing it. Uh, so this is Isaiah 63. Uh, it says, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like him who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption had come. So Christ is going to come. He is going to make war with the enemies, not only his enemies, but the enemies of his people, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. And many passages also say that he's coming with his saints. Uh, So regardless of our proximity to Jesus on that day, we are on Jesus' side as he makes war against his enemies. And I think in this sense, uh, Malachi 4 does see a pretty literal fulfillment uh, in in this sense that the enemies of God are going to be subdued and conquer. He's going to trod upon them uh, and we're going to be on one side and they are going to be on the other side. He will separate the sheep from the goats, uh, the wheat from the tares, and his people will be forever vindicated. And perhaps, for some of you, like all this talk of vindication 
doesn't seem very tangible to us because we don't have those kinds of enemies. But I would say, remember, even for many Christians today, this wouldn't be so intangible and unrelatable. For many people in the Eastern world, their culture centers upon honor and shame. And to become a Christian is to become utterly shamed. They are mocked and scorned. They lose their jobs. They're disowned from their families. Uh, They're persecuted. They're divorced from their spouse. Why? Because it's so shameful to do what they've done. And they spend the rest of their lives being shamed and outcasted by their culture and society. Today, people are told that Christianity is a a Western white man's religion and and it's a false god. Uh, And thinking of the Islamic world, they're made to suffer endlessly at the hands of their persecutors. And for them to know that the day is coming when all the oppression that I've received, all the, the persecution, the day is coming when I will not be ashamed of the gospel. I will not be put to shame on that day, but I will be vindicated for my faith in God uh, and my trust in Him. And all my opponents, all my enemies who have mocked and scorned me, uh, they're the ones who are going to be shown to be foolish and uh, in the wrong. So I have a question now. Whether it's Revelation, Malachi, or uh, Isaiah, these verses can be like kind of very, sound very combative. <laughs> they are. Uh, he's talking about war. But why do verses like this not instill an antagonistic attitude today towards unbelievers in the way that we relate to the world? So I would say we shouldn't hear these verses and say, like, assume our battle posture and be like, us versus them, time to do war in, in that sense of they're the enemy and I'm going to make war against them. And it so it can create a kind of hostile, combative spirit in Christians. Why should it not? So I'm assuming that it shouldn't. <laughs> uh, why should it not? Great commission. Okay. So parse that out a little bit. So it tells us to go and all the Christ, therefore go and make disciples of the nations. So we're mm-hmm. not a chosen people as a nation in that sense that Israel was, where mm-hmm. the chosen people of God sent out to the nations to make disciples of the nations. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have the same sense of um, separation from the nations because the people of God is now included, inclusive of all the nations, mm-hmm. people from all the nations. Yeah. <coughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. We were once as enemies. If anything, we should have the most compassion. You're the ones that need to be trampled. Mm-hmm. If, if we weren't chosen, we weren't um, saved by him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we should have that perspective of we were his enemy. We were the ones being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so we so I, I disagree. I think there is, a, and I also disagree. I think there is a sense of war, mm-hmm. but not against people. Yeah. Right. And and you know what he's what he's saying is like yes we are to make, you know Christ to make disciples of all men. Right. That again we share the, the most understanding. Because every day I think we're reminded how at least I am how atrocious a sinner I am. Yeah. And I should be just I should be in the ash. And if we follow the example of Jesus. When he was here on earth, he was bringing the message of peace and gentleness 
And you can't convert people with anger. If you want people to come to Christ, you have to persuade them with compassion mm-hmm. and the knowledge of who he is. Yeah. I think the other point is, it says on the day when I act. Mm-hmm. Like, I have done that. Right? I trod them down. Mm-hmm. Like, right. there was no, like, we're not, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's not my, like, I'm in the battle, but it's not my battle. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I'm behind that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so th- this is one thing, and I I could, I would like to speak to everything um, and affirm these, but uh, one of the things that I highlight is that, this is what Paul says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord of hosts, I will repay. And, and so we think about the Lord judging our enemies, that actually, that doesn't make us combative towards them, it actually liberates us from being combative and from being hostile because we aren't the ones who need to establish justice. We don't have to exact vengeance and to make things fair because we can, we can let go and say, God is, God is going to make all things right. And so even if this person does wrong me repeatedly, uh, even if they do oppress me, uh, not, not that you can't take any action, uh, that, that there aren't wise things you can do, but in terms of vengeance and, and making things fair, you can let go of that and, and give it to the Lord. Uh, and so you're actually liberated to love people in this life because you know that Jesus is coming. And, and whatever ends are left untied, he, he's going to settle the count. And, and I don't need to worry about that. I'm not the judge. And so we're actually liberated to love our enemies because we know that God is going to establish justice. He is going to take vengeance. So we don't need to be the ones to do that. Uh, and we don't need to concern ourselves with it. And, and Steve, you were saying we are in a battle. And I, I would affirm that. And as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers and principalities. So this, this earthly warfare in the Old Testament it is brought to a higher level where we see this is not about two earthly kingdoms, but it's about two spiritual kingdoms. It's about the kingdom of Christ in the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and so the way that we do war isn't by you know, physical combat, but it's the weapons of spiritual warfare. And, and that's not you know, anger and political means and all, all sorts of things, but it's the conduct of Christ. Righteousness, mercy, grace. And that's how we do war <laughs> in, in the kingdom is by loving people as Christ loved us. And, and so I think we can profit from the, these concepts and, and thinking these categories, but we have, to, we have to appropriate them rightly as believers in the New Covenant, as followers of Christ, uh, as the Bible. So it's not us appropriating them, but, but we have to follow how the Bible appropriates them in its, the covenant context. Let, let's uh, just at least look at these really quick verse. Four, five, and six. So here, here's the exhortation in verse four. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then there's the promise in verse five and six. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And I think these last two verses really 
serve as the outro, the, the conclusion for not just this dispute, for the whole book. And it's very simple, very straightforward instruction. It kind of reminds me of Ecclesiastes, if, if you know that. The, the sum of all things you know, has been set forth. This is what you should do. Honor God, fear Him, keep His commandments. But in verse 4, basically, God says, instead of fixating upon all your grievances, upon all your complaints against me and, and against my providence in your life, if you can just, if you remember the book of Malachi, things like, how has God loved us? Where is the justice of God? Why should we serve God? Why should we give our money to God? Why should we obey God? There's no point. He's saying, this is what you should fixate upon. The word of God and the promise of his coming. Remember the law and wait for the forerunner of the Messiah. And of course, as John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah, preaching repentance or preparing people for the coming of Christ. But the simple outro in the book of Malachi, in light of all the disputes and all their complaining, it makes me think of Philippians. Uh, I don't have it. But in Philippians 4, familiar passage, uh, it says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So there, there's a lifting our eyes to the, the promise of His coming. The Lord is at hand. Uh, that's what immediately precedes verse 6 that we all know. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be know, made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So remember the law. That's the summation command that, that the Lord gives in light of all their issues. Remember the law. Meditate upon it. Think upon it. If you do that, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. You'll yield fruit in its season. You'll be blessed in all that you do. Meditate. Think about the law. Remember it. Instead of disputing with God, meditate, in Paul's language, upon whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure and lovely and commendable. Think about these things. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a lot more that could be said about these verses, but as usual, I kind of front load at the beginning and then there's no time at the end. Um, so there's two minutes. So we have two minutes for... Uh, I'm curious. Uh, I think most of you have been in Malachi for most of, of the class. I would say if there's anything that you guys have learned about the book of Malachi or that you've learned from the book of Malachi... Uh, maybe it's ways that you've been encouraged. Maybe it's ways that you've been convicted. A- anything like that in the next two minutes that you'd like to share just as we kind of, if, if there's any, or it could just be from today, kind of recapping the book in, in two minutes. A- anything that you've profited from Malachi? No, no pressure, though. No pressure. <laughs> I, I love how Malachi is structured with the, this sort of objection and response. And I feel like it just shines such a mirror into each of our hearts of objections that we've had in our mm-hmm. hearts if we're honest with ourselves over the course of our Christian life. Yeah. And even if they pop up, we're like, oh, I know that's not true. It's just so helpful to be like, no, hold it up, look at it. 
what does God's word say? Mm-hmm. And just addressing these sort of bad attitudes we have. And I think yeah. the structure is so unique in Malachi and it's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's very heart-exposing often uh, because there's such foundational things. That the love of God, the justice of God, how we're relating to our money and our resources, uh, how we serve God, our obedience, uh, very foundational things in the Christian life. Anything else? Basically, we need to really look at ourselves and how we worship God. Are we doing what He wants? You know, offering Him something that isn't in His list of worship. Mm-hmm. It's not beneficial to you or to God. Mm-hmm. We need to know that what He commanded for us. Yeah. And it's kind of sobering because this is the last message to the Israelites before 400 years of silence. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, hello, are you paying attention? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, one thing that I was freshly convicted about as I was uh, the dispute about basically money and how they were relating to their money. And, and I was also encouraged because God gives a promise, you know. Uh, he's like, test me. <laughs> See if I want to open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing. If, if you'll be faithful and trust me. So I, I was both convicted and I was uh, encouraged by that. Any, any other questions from this text that you want to highlight before we go? I'm sorry. Can I just... This slide <coughs> Uh, okay, it says he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What is he referencing? Almost, I, yeah. I know I only have two minutes. Yeah, no. Uh, I'm, I'm this person, and every single time I'm like, what? I'm doing this because I was literally this morning like, I don't really know what that means. Like, I mean, I, mean, I, know, I know in, in general, he's speaking of his role as preaching repentance. And, and turning their hearts, in, in terms of the, the actual language, the specific language of the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. Uh, yeah, I, to me, I'm not, I don't have clarity upon how exactly that is communicating repentance. I, so I have something to do, which I should have, I just realized that like, I got to the end then didn't have time, and then I was like, oh, wait, I never, like, I still don't know really what this means. So you're just exposing me in the last minute of the class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's pray. I want to get you guys out of here. Lord, we, we thank you that you are coming again, uh, that you are just and you are righteous, and, and that you will do all things right and you do all things well. We thank you for the mercy that we have received. Lord, we want to be shaped by that mercy, uh, as Steve was saying, and we want to uh, be mindful that, that we were once stood condemned under your wrath. Uh, we were destined for destruction, and as a bland, brand plucked from the fire, uh, you, you saved us. And so we want to show that same mercy as we relate to others. And even if others do wrong us or harm us in some way, Lord, we want to let Leave vengeance to you. Uh, Leave justice, the exacting of of justice to you. And we thank you that we don't have to be the judge of the world. We don't have to be the ones to try to make all things right because we know you are coming. And Lord, so we just pray that you'd help us to, in this time, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and to seek their welfare as 
you have sought our welfare while we were enemies. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.